0: Lord, I pray now as you say that your word is sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit as a discerner in the intent and thoughts of our heart. God, you tell us that as snow falls to the ground and does not rise up again without watering the ground it lands on, causing it to bud and flourish and to bring seed to the sower and bread to the one who eats. So is your word. It never returns empty, but always accomplishes what you desire. And I just pray tonight that your word would burst open and come alive and that we would be enthralled in you tonight, that we would be captivated in your scriptures and that we would be we would get it. We would be there 3000 years ago in the midst of this crazy battle that we see here and that we would draw from this text everything that you would want us to. We recognize, Lord, this is a millennium before you, Jesus, came in the flesh. And yet, Lord, we recognize that all of this is preparation. One of the things that sets you apart from every other human being, from every other thing that's ever claimed to to demand worship is that you had been foretold before any of this had ever happened, before the foundation of the world It was already decided that you would provide redemption. And I just want to thank you for that. And I want to thank you that you know every one of our names, that you know every atom, every freckle, everything that makes us giggle, every tickle spot, everything that bothers us, every food that irritates us, every person that irritates us, every thought that we hold on to to make us feel better, and everything we seek to avoid that makes us feel worse. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would tonight speak a word into each of us so that we could understand that your word would just be so perfect. Then we would get it, Lord, as you intend now. So I pray that you would immerse me in your spirit, that you would be seen and come upon me so that you would do what I cannot do, what you can do, what I cannot humanly do. And that, God, is that you would speak to each one of us, speak into our lives, bespoke and perfect into each of us, just where we need to hear. And may we recognize that tonight. May we recognize your presence here. And Jesus, you yourself say, "Lo, I come in the volume of the book. You've promised us that even though there are those who search the scriptures thinking by them they possess eternal life, you tell us, Lord, that they are those that speak of you. So even this, a thousand years before you came, still brings us to you. And I thank you for that. So Lord, speak that which we need to tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Again, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true. You've heard it now more than once. Okay, now context. We're roughly between 1000 and 1100 BC. Israel has now made its exodus out of Egypt. It's traveled through the wilderness for its 40 years. It's made its way into the promised land and went through a series that we would call the time of judges. It was a horrible cycle. And many Christians go through that same cycle. God really blesses them. And as God blesses them, they they turn their back on the blesser because they're so blessed they feel like they can to be honest, and and as they veer from God and the intimacy of God, they find themselves ultimately relying on everything but him, and then they wind up, in essence, running off with other things. Now, understand, God doesn't call that just disobedience or rebellion, though those are easy words for God to use. He uses the word adultery, and I, and I I want you to recognize why. Because God really wants us to recognize that he wants to be in a love relationship with us. A really intimate relationship with us. Not just something where we kind of say, yes, sir, no, sir. And we report like we're working for a large corporation. You can't commit adultery with anyone but a person you patrols to. And in that time, what happens is their life gets so miserable as they turn from God. And just like any groom would offer his provision, his protection, and his pleasure and his presence, God does too. And when you run from him... Expect then the same, that those very things that God offers now, well, they're not. When you walk out of the household of God, if you will, you don't find them anywhere else. And and can I just say, out of love, God really does want you miserable when you're running from Him. Why would He want you happy? Why would He want you blessed when you're running from Him? Because the reason you were created was not to worship Him, was not to praise Him, was not to serve Him. It was to be with Him. Worship and service, to be honest, should become a product of that. Now, understand, if everything in God's heart, what if we just grasp that one concept, that everything in God's heart revolves around the idea that what he really wants is to be with you? Then the whole story of the cross, the whole story of Jesus makes perfect sense. So, so here was, during the time of Judges, God makes this comment. He says, in that time there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now understand, it doesn't say everyone did what was wrong in their own eyes, or they felt like they were free to do whatever they wanted, even if they knew it was wrong. They actually believed that what they were doing was right. And there's the problem, is that God actually even warned them of that all the way back, and I don't know if you're aware of this, in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 15, by the way, that's just after they crossed the Red Sea. God says in chapter 15, verse 26, He says, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord, your God, and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep his statutes, well, then all of the things that God promised would come upon your enemies wouldn't come upon you. He will reiterate that in 1225 of Deuteronomy, verse 28, 13, 18, 21, 9. He constantly reiterates, if you do what is right in my sight, I'm going to bless you. On the other side of it, in Deuteronomy 12.8, he actually says, do not do what every other man is doing, what you're doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. And of course, that becomes the whole theme of Judges. But he tells us the purposes or the reason behind it all was there was no real king. And let me put that back into the idea of a Christian, and we'll kind of get ready for our text. In the world we live in right now, we kind of sell Jesus. We kind of recognize that it's kind of a difficult community that we're in, and we recognize people aren't going to be really hip on the concept. So we kind of have to pat it down. And to be honest, it's kind of a lot like introducing an ugly friend, trying to sell an ugly friend on a friend of yours that you wanted him to date. And you're like, well, she's got a nice personality. I mean, you kind of playing enough, you kind of play off the good things, as if somehow you're embarrassed by the person, and you wouldn't just say, well, we, we just wait till you meet her. They'll be, you'd be stupid not to. And we kind of convince ourselves that that's the way we have to play Jesus to the non-believer. But hear me in all of this. Israel had no king. So what we do here often in the contemporary world is we play the whole savior role. Jesus, you need to confess Jesus as your savior. Ask Jesus into your heart. But we don't actually say what scripture demands, and that is that he needs to be your lord. He actually, you have to surrender to him as the one who actually has rights over all of you. And we know the reason is, is if we say that to people, there's a lot more people that will say no. But if they say yes to the thing that isn't right, it's not saying yes at all. And there's the danger. We could think we've really bought someone into this when really we really haven't presented the real Jesus. Now, in our story here, we're in this time, by the way, where God now, the people are sick and tired of looking like the rest of the world. Israel is, I'm sorry, is not looking like the rest of the world. Israel is saying, look, you know, we want a king to be like everyone else. We're really, really tired of being made fun of. We're tired of feeling like the outcast. Do you guys feel that sometimes? You know, we're tired of people looking at us and laughing and pointing. We're tired of that. So we want to be like the rest of the world. We're tired of being... The oddball, the outcast, the joke. So give us a king because everyone else has one. Can we have one that will go before us, fight our battles, represent us? God says, you want a king like the rest of the world? I'll give you a king like the rest of the world. And God gives him a man named Saul. Saul, the first physical king of Israel, God, by the way, makes clear he was their king originally. And He had already told them, by the way, in Deuteronomy 17, you are going to ask for a king. God already knew that. By the way, know this. At any time in your life that you feel like you've blown it so bad, God couldn't want you. But before you did that, you thought God did want you. You need to recognize God already knew all of the mistakes you would make when he already chose to love you. That's the good news. Well, that's not license to sin. But it sure is peace in those moments when we're stupid. Saul, by the way, is a man with a great calling, but no consecration. And by this point now, Saul has actually been clearly declared king. Now, when he has, understand, he started with an army of 330,000 soldiers. But what we read in the last chapter is Saul started to ease off. He went from this 330,000 soldiers to 3,000 soldiers, of which, by the way, 2,000 guarded him and 1,000 guarded his son, Jonathan. So, in other words... Basically, he sent everyone else home except his bodyguards was kind of the idea. Now, interesting, as it's the case, though, there is a perennial enemy. And the perennial enemy is a group called the Philistines. The Philistines, by the way, were not originally born in the land of Israel. To be, you're probably aware of the fact that that ultimately abonics gets into uh, the, what people call today the, the Palestinians. Uh, interesting, by the way, because the term Philistine or Palestinian actually really means stranger foreigner not from around here so it's kind of hard to argue a land is yours when you're actually calling yourself a foreigner for what it's worth and understand they can they tend to arise over and over and over again uh, much like the flesh does in our own lives that thing that desires to kind of run and rule us in a very very selfish way and please understand nowhere in scripture does it ever say that your flesh nature will ever submit to god it only says that you will that it has to be Well, it has to be reckoned dead. It will never convert. And therefore, it has to be replaced with God's nature through his Holy Spirit. During this particular time now, what happens is is that Saul has really become fat and lazy, if you will. And in that then, the very land that God had promised Israel wasn't being conquered anymore. There was no one actually on the offense except one person. And what I find really interesting is we really don't read much about him until we read that Saul making a sacrifice that he was not allowed to make. God says, your heritage is over now in the last chapter. In other words, you're not going to have any more kings from your lineage, which is important because then we start reading about a kid who now knows he'll never be king. And that's what would you do if you were the son? And your dad was king, and you would, you would know as soon as dad kind of kicks off, you're the next guy on line. But then all of a sudden he gets this judgment that you'll never be king. Do you just rant and rave and then become a troubled child? Or do you actually go to the place now and you say, you know what? I'm going to serve the Lord anyways. And that's really what you see with this guy, Jonathan. He's one of my heroes in Scripture, by the way. I love this guy in this chapter all the more because what we see what happens. So this kid knows he's never going to be king. And yet, while Saul is laying back and doing nothing, Jonathan's going on the advance. And please hear me now as we get into the text. There's two key points in this. It's like we look at this now when we realize there's, I mean, especially in this chapter and the next, there's a lot of bloodshed we kind of look at that and we think, now, well, how does that relate to us as Christians? It's important to note that God's not calling us to do that. Jesus said, by the way, as he was being arrested, my kingdom is not of this world. If, if it were, my servants would be fighting. I, I get that. But we interestingly enough, we look at this battle from a very spiritual perspective and we look at it from a spiritual battle. But this actually blows wide open. And I realize as I'm going through this, how utterly self-consumed we are as Christians. And what I mean by that is, is that when we talk about spiritual warfare, does it ever involve an offense or does it only involve that? It's like God's here to try to make my life comfortable and something happened to make me uncomfortable. And that must be spiritual warfare. And I spilled something on my shirt, I missed the train, you know, my food was bad, I have indigestion. It's spiritual warfare. It's as if somehow in it the devil's biggest ambition in life is to just make you unpleasant. But scripture shows us that what God had called us to is to be the ones on the advance, not the ones just holding our ground, but on the advance. And if we started to look beyond ourselves and realize the spiritual battle is, well, what about those people walking out there, even while we're in this room? I mean, it's like when we go to share Jesus with them, that's the real spiritual battle that we're going to see. When God seeks to take every thought captive and we want to go out there, but we're too afraid. There's the spiritual battle. Because we know that we're not going to hell. We know that because we can recognize in Scripture that Jesus has paid our price. But if we really cared, are we ever ever going to go and go, all right, it's time to get on the offensive. Or is it just, you know what, I'm afraid if I do that, I might actually trip and embarrass myself. Or I have to approach a stranger. Or how about just the people you know, your family, your neighbors, your roommates. I mean, what about those people? Do they know more like what it really means to be a Christian? Because understand, the difference here is, and this is our second thing in this, is what difference can one individual make? Well, you're going to find one individual has an armor bearer, and it makes all the difference in the world. And what if that individual is you? What if God put such a spirit that is upon Jonathan, upon you tonight? What would happen? If God actually said, you know what, even if the church in mass is really about being tucked away into an irrelevant and in in a place of impotence, as far as the world's concerned, uh, you know, they kind of look and what they really want is us kind of in our little boxes so that we're not in any way offensive and we're not in any way uh, challenging and we're not threatening to them. So if we can just hang out in a room and sing Kumbaya and here we are in a cafe, that's strange enough. The reason I say that is, is what if God did this tonight to us? And my prayer is that this would inspire us. That Jonathan would be the kind of guy who go, you know what, make me like this guy. Well, read it with me. First Samuel 14.1 says this. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. Now, Saul is sitting at the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And now, Migron, by the way, for what it's worth in the Hebrew, means terror, to be thrown and to flee, is kind of the idea, or precipice. And Saul is, in essence, sitting. He's chilling out. And as Saul is sitting under this thing, his son is about to go and take this to battle. And even though his son's going to take it to battle, he's not telling dad at the moment. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Saul now has his army. His army from now, 330,000 men have now whittled away to 600 men. Jonathan on the other. And you would think now, by the way, the Philistines have encamped at Michmash. And what we're going to find is they're innumerable. And that's part of the problem here. Is that the enemy at this point is so set up that who in the world wants to take these guys on? Especially when you're looking around and when you've got is 600 men. Interesting, the only other time that we find... An innumerable army was with Gideon, if you're familiar with the book of Judges. Interesting, by the way, that guy's army got whittled away to 300 men, and they took on an innumerable army and saw victory. And the only difference was that the Lord did it. Saul here now, his army from 330,000 have gone down to this 600 men. And he's freaking out. He's actually hanging out at a place called Terrorized, which makes a lot of sense. Jonathan, on the other hand, he's not looking to count his men. He's got one guy with him, and that's all he needs, his armor bearer. So Saul's sitting under this tree. He's counting his men. He's got 600 men. He has no interest in engaging in battle at this point. Verse 3, Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. But the people didn't know that Jonathan had gone. Now, what this tells me is, is that the priest really wasn't involved in this at this moment. They weren't bringing him in. And we have a whole family here that sort of brought in. So we recognize this goes all the way back to Aaron. And it says, between the passes, and this is where we really hit our precipice in verse 4. Between the passes, by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Boziz. Try that word, Budzez. Come on, that's it. Come on, it's Hebrew, so you got to go, Botis. try it, botes. That was fun. And the name of the other is Senech. Senech. Try that. Senech. Now, that's kind of fun. Now, it now, probably doesn't mean anything to us other than who names rocks, right? The guys inside, there's a sharp rock on one side, there's a sharp rock on the other, and they both have names. And it says, now, the front one, that's going to be the first one, faced opposite Michmash, and the other one faced opposite Geber. Now, Whoop-dee-doo, right? God's just given us place names of some place we've never been, unless you've been to Israel. And I've been to Israel many times, but I'm still not finding a rock named Boltez anywhere. I don't look and go, hey, there's the rock of Boltez. Now, the reason I say that is that there must be more. But we are in the perfect place, beloved, for this. And the reason I say that is, is because we live in a town where most of our, or in a country, where most of the names of our places actually are in English. I mean, I came from California, and California, most of the stuff was Spanish. I mean, and so it's like I didn't learn another language to learn that Los Angeles means the angels, which is interesting because there's a, a sports team there called the angels, and they call themselves the Los Angeles angels, which literally means the the angels, angels. Now, here though, we have places like Mudshoot, Spittlefields, which tells me some people named their towns because they wanted to be alone. Is what I'm getting out of that, you know, I mean, who feel the spit? I, I mean, I think that's weird, but at least we know what it means. We probably get so used to it. We don't think about it. And the reason I say that is when you're speaking Hebrew, these rocks have names that mean something to us. And there is part of the, the gift of this as we start getting into the life of this guy, Jonathan. Hear me on this. We're in a path, which means we have we have to go one of two directions. Neither one of these directions is an easy direction to take. Both ways, there's going to be a challenge. On one side, it's in front of us. On one side, it's behind us. On one side is our first word. And I remember that's Boziz. And behind us is Senech. In front of us is Michmash. That's the the land in front of us. And behind us is Gebeah. Now, why is that important? Because first of all, it's important to recognize Saul, and therefore his son Jonathan, are from what place? Does anyone remember where it says Saul of... Gebeah Gebeah's home is where he came from is the place of safety is the place where you were raised where everything was carefree remember what it was like when you were a kid and you didn't have to worry about bills or traffic or catching the train unless your parents were really in a hurry behind him on one side is his past Gebeah in front of him is Michmash. Michmash, by the way, I want to remind you, is the place where the enemy is now encamped. And now we have our two rocks. The rock behind us actually means cursed or thorned. The word sinner. When I want to look back, if I want to go back, I'm going back to a cursed world that I came from. But the word, the word boat says that was in front of him literally means surpassingly white or extremely glorious. So put yourself in this place. Even tonight, here you are so for this moment. We have this moment together and you're going to walk out this door sometime in the next whenever. And when you walk out this door, you're going to choose one of these two routes. You're either going to go back to the world you came from and go back to the kind of comforts you thought you had, and go back to the things you're most familiar with. But that's a place, by the way, riddled with thorns and riddled with problems. And you know the problem is you're familiar with the vices, and you're familiar with the bonds, and you're familiar with the chains. And we're familiar with all of the the trials and the struggles there. But, But at least we're familiar with them. Or there's this other side to take. But we know that if we really want to go and embrace God's best, if we really want to go and say, God, I want to follow you with Everything. Well, we know that there are battles to be fought there, too. And we know that there's an enemy who's not going to be very happy about that. But it is the exceeding glory that God is actually offering us if we're willing to take that step. And you go, but but, but not everyone's doing it. As a matter of fact, of the 600 people, none of those 600 people are going with him. And his own dad isn't going with him. And his dad, I remind you, is the king that they said, let him lead us into battle. Let him fight our battles. Let him lead us. And so the people are letting him lead him. He's going nowhere, and so they aren't either. But Jonathan fed up with it. He's so tired of Christianity, or in this case, Judaism, or the nation Israel. He's so tired of it looking like something that's just picked on by the world. Some kind of ignorant little kid that everyone looks at as weak and fragile and insignificant, that everyone that feels weak picks and puts it all and projects it on him and then bullies him around. He's sick of this. He's sick of looking and having, having the Philistines kind of run things and set the territory and telling them, you can't go past this. What it told us in the last chapter is that Israel couldn't even go and get weapons. They actually, the only thing they had were pitchforks and plows. And, and that was it. They had farm tools that they could only get set or they could only get sharpened at the Philistine territory because they were the ones that handled metal. And so all you had, that was the best you had except two swords. And the two swords were in the hands of Saul, who was, who was doing nothing with it except maybe opening mail, and then, or chopping a tomato. And then you've got Jonathan, who, by the way, now says, you know, I've got this sword. What am I going to do with it? But imagine what that would mean, that if he's going to lead a group in a battle, it's going to look like the scene from Frankenstein, you know, where everyone's kind of got their like pitchforks and they're like, Aah. I mean, that's what you've got here. And you can kind of look and go, you know, but, but if I go, I might have to do this alone. Yeah, you might. If I do this, you know, I, I won't have the big applause from so many people. Yeah, you're right. That might be true. But is it really uh, enough and okay just to sit around and sit around the cesspool of nothingness and, and, and apathy and lethargy and think that's Okay. Jonathan looks and he recognizes there's a hard rock on either side of him. And he's between a rock and a hard place. Well, he's between a rock and a rock. And he recognizes it's gonna, he can't stay in the place he's in. He's going to have to go one direction or the other. The question is, where would you go? You know, in the book of Acts, some of you are familiar with the book. It's the fifth book of the New Testament. It tells us what happens after Jesus' ascension onward. There's a man named Saul as well. He will ultimately get a name change to Paul, who was actually the assistant on his first mission trip, if you will, with a guy named Barnabas, who got the nickname by the guys that were around him. Barnabas, by the way, like Barney, like I love you, you love me. Barney actually means son of encouragement. And then we might say Mr. Encouraging. And imagine, this is the guy, everyone around him gives him, hey, kudos, hey, there's Mr. Encouragement. And, and, and he seems to be older, because usually that's the way things are listed. And, and, and so this guy goes with Saul, and they take with them Barnabas' cousin. His name is John Mark. John Mark, by the way, we don't, do know his mother has a house in Jerusalem. And they go on this trip, and they make their way through Cyprus, from the east end to the west end, because they've left from Israel, so that's the proper, ter- proper direction. But when they get up to the southern coast of Turkey, well, let me say this. They had two different directions. Paul, at that point, gets his name changed, Saul to Paul. And Barnabas head into Turkey to share Jesus with people who have never heard him before. John, on the other hand, John Mark, heads back to Jerusalem. And, And understand... We don't get a lot of information. The Bible doesn't spend an awful lot of time about the debate and what it was, but we do know it was bad enough that the next time that Barnabas wants to take him, Paul is adamantly against it. But please hear me. It was like in the port there were two boats one to this amazing adventure that moves forward that's going to be full of crazy stories to tell about how God stepped in and did stuff so mind-blowing. You'd be like, I've never seen anything like that before. And that's one boat. And then there was another boat, the boat back to Jerusalem, the boat of safety, the boat of familiarity, the boat where everyone kind of knew your name. You could be coddled. And feel like you're okay. Because after all, I've never really gone beyond this anyways. Why start now? But the problem is, we really don't read much about John Mark after that. Because really, he kind of benched himself. And John Mark going to this place, he benched himself from so many amazing things. And beloved, please hear me. I really don't want that for you. I don't want you to be in this place where you look back 10 years from now if the Lord tarries and go, man, I really wish that I'd given this a shot. I wonder what it would have been like to give him everything and expect him to do amazing things. The craziest stories we have in our lives will be at those moments where if nothing else, God forced us into those moments where he had to pull through. And we're like, you know, we love to be able to live a life full of God's miracles, but we hate to be put in a place where we have to have them. And today there's a boat to take on one side or the other. Jonathan, his choice is there. So it says then, and then in verse 6, Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, come. Let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised that it may be that the Lord will work with us. Now notice he isn't even confident that the Lord's even got this thing handled yet. I mean, he knows that somehow in this the Lord's going to handle it, but he doesn't know how. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. See, what Jonathan realizes, and perhaps he was familiar with the Gideon story where God even whittled down the army half of what Saul has. He realized, you know, God really can use anything. I have a friend, and he's unbelievably gifted at being a handyman. He was one of my assistant pastors in the States. And, you know, the guys that aren't very good, like myself, and that, I never really had any history with it, um, it'd be very easy to blame your tools. Of course, you know, never... Respect the guy that blames his tools for doing everything wrong, you know. But th- what I loved about Matt was that Matt could just—I mean, he could pound a nail in with a screwdriver if he wanted to. He was just that good. But I recognize that even with musicians, I recognize that with any artist or any athlete, that if you're just good, the tools aren't as important as the ability of the craftsman. And the reason I say that is is that when we start looking at some of these things, what Jonathan seemed to recognize is that he wasn't the athlete, he was the jersey. He wasn't the artist, he was the paintbrush. He wasn't the craftsman, he was just the tool. And if you recognize that, then the issue is just whose hands do you want to be in, because someone's going to use you. Do you really want to be used to tear things down or build things up? The cool thing is, is that my life became so amazing the moment I said, Lord, take this life now and do something really, really cool with it. And he did. And he continues to. And I know that's what he has for all of us. But when we go, oh, God, but I'm just, what? Who? I mean, find your excuse and see if it doesn't fit into someone else's that's already tried with God and it hasn't worked. I'm too young. I'm too old. My mouth is too raw. You know, I don't speak well. I've got a foul mouth. I've got a bad history. They've all been tried on God. And God's like, do you really think that when I chose you for this mission that I didn't really know all the details? Is there some way you're going to inform God why he made a foolish choice by choosing you? How smart is your God? So please understand, Jonathan looks at this and he goes, you know, God doesn't need a huge army because God's the one who's going to do the work. All he really wants and all he needs is availability, not ability, availability. It's his job to do the rest. Now, here's the good news. Jonathan does have an armor bearer. Now, do you know what an armor bearer is, right? He's a guy who carries a big shield. And he's a guy who has a little sword. That's all he really has. A big shield So that he can help block things from the guy that's actually wielding the weapon, and usually a little sword. In this case, we read he doesn't have a sword. I don't even know what he has—a pitchfork, he has a, you know, something that came out of the end of a plow. I mean, it's something. A shiv is like something that he kind of, you know, somebody would invent in prison. But the whole point of it's this: is that that these two men are going to advance now, and as they're going to advance, he looks at this guy and he goes, "Hey, I'm going to go and do this. Do you want to come with me?" And his armor bearer says, and I love this. He goes, "Do all that is in your heart, go, because I'm." He says, "Here I am with you, according to your heart." And I pray for this for every one of you and me too. That God would give us one person that would at least say, "You know what, I'm going to do this with you." You know, I, hey, you want to go out there and, and do something crazy? Let's do this crazy thing together. Now, interesting, in the book of Ephesians, I'm more familiar with the, the spiritual battle. We look at it from Ephesians 6 and 2 Corinthians 10. It tells us that the shield, by the way, we see there at least, when we're putting on the full armor of God, is a shield of faith. And I wonder, is there anyone at all that you could just stand with that would challenge you to greatness and just be willing to pray for you as you do it? Hold up that shield. Because we're going to see they're both involved in this by the time it's done. We call them armor rebears when we go out and share with Jesus with people on the streets. We say, hey, you know, can you, would you just be willing to pray for me while I'm out there sharing? Would you be willing to do that much? And what you find is after about a half hour of going out there and doing it, they're sharing more than you are on a lot of occasions. It's kind of fun to watch that. But Jonathan looks and he goes, hey, are you in with me? And Jonathan's and his armor bearer, who, by the way, we don't even read his name, says, you know what? I'm so with you on this. Let's do this thing. I'm tired of sitting around doing nothing and calling it God's favor. So here's his little here's his little ploy. Jonathan says, verse eight, very well, then, let us cross over to these men and we'll show ourselves to them. Right. And, And then if they say to us wait, we're going to come up to you. Well, then we'll stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, well, then we will go up. For the Lord has delivered them into our hand and this will be assigned to us. Now, I have no idea how Jonathan came up with this. Was he in prayer and the Lord just met him there and told him this? We have no record of it. Do we assume this isn't presumption? This is truly faith? It's kind of a fun thought, though. I mean, imagine this. You're going to tell a bunch of guys, by the way, I remind you, Philistines have spears. They have bows and arrows. I mean, you know, so you've got Hawkeye on one side, and you've got whoever throws javelins. You know, on the other, it's not like you just show yourself up and go, like, yeah. And then they're like, well, we, wait till we get close enough to stab you. You know, I mean, this is you're a, you're a, you're a target from the moment you present yourself. And I remind you, they have to climb up a hill on either side. They're in a valley of decision. So, uh, you know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to climb up to the top and go, hey, blah, 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 blah. And then you see what they say. And if they say, we're coming at you. Notice it doesn't say, in either case, we're going to run away. Did you notice that? It says, here's the deal. If they come at us, we'll just hold our ground. But if they say, come on in, well, then, then we know God's given us victory in this. Now, think about this from a perspective of the spiritual battle when we're looking at the offense. By the way, there's only one real offensive weapon, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the sword you're going to wield is the word of God. And the point of that gospel, I'm sorry, the point of the word, the tip of the sword is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because a sword without a point is just a blunt object. And unless you're Peter, you don't just whack somebody in the head with it. The pointy end goes in. That's the whole point of a sword. Now, the reason I say that is, is that when God starts telling us this, please hear me in this. What he's telling us, if you realize that what we're really looking for is a victory. And that victory, think about this, that victory is to see people come to know him. And when that happens, the old man dies. And we see a great slaughter of the enemy and a great slaughter of the old man. And in its place, we see a great victory of Jesus. So hear me in this. On one side of it, they come at us. And if they come at us, we'll just hold our ground. We are not going to bend. We're going to stand where we are. And we're not going to give up any ground. But if they invite us in, we know there's a victory to be had. Then what if that were the case? I'm going to show myself to people and say, I want you to know I love Jesus. I've given my life to Christ. I'd love for you to know more. And if they come at you, hold your ground. But if they say, hey, I'd really like to know more, can I invite you in, kind of thing, then say, well, I know there's a victory to be had there. Could you imagine if that was the case? But for that to happen, we have to have the kind of mind where we want to gain ground. How radical would that be? So hear me. They go and they do this then. Is that right? So both of them, verse 11, showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines and the Philistines said, look, The Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they've hidden. So they said, well, then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan in his armor and said, come up to us and we'll show you something. I'm sure it's going to be something sweet. right? Come here and we want to show you something. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his knees with his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan and as he came after him, his armor bearer killed him. So get this. So, what happens is, though the other guy's got this spear and I don't know what, Jonathan comes at him first and he kind of just knocks him down. And as he knocks him down, then the other guy takes him, he kind of finishes him off. It's kind of the one tool thing here. And what's amazing about it, and I love this, is that God's going to say it's a great slaughter. This first slaughter, verse 14, which Jonathan, his armor bearer, made, was about 20 men. I'm like, God calls that a slaughter. And why? Because it's still a great victory, because one man and his armor bearer were willing to go and take this on. I remind you, an innumerable army. It was about a half an acre of land. It's actually the amount of land that a, uh, a yoke of oxen would plow in a day, is the idea. And there was trembling in the camp. And among all the people, the garrison of the raiders also trembled. And the earth quaked. I mean, everything was shaken over there. And it was a very great trembling. The word, by the way, is the word charada. And charada, by the way, means extreme anxiety. Now, now, please hear me in this. The idea is simple. The first result we see. The, you start taking it. You go, you know what? Let's do this. We're going to get together. And we're just going to go. And, and I just want to share with my family. I just want to share with my friends. And you sit down and you say, hey, look, it, I really want to tell you what Jesus has done in my life. And if they come at you, I'm going to, if you come at me, I'm going to hold my ground. Know that. You're not going to talk me out of this. But if you really want to know more, I'd really love to know. I'd really love to speak to you. And, and, and as it's the case, then, the first thing you start to see is that the enemy starts to tremble. They realize they don't have the power they thought they did. Now, while this is all happening, I remind you, Saul is still sitting under a pomegranate tree doing nothing, counting his men, if you will. Verse 17, it says, And Saul said to the people who were with him, Now call the roll and see who has gone out from us. Now, the reason is, in verse 16, the watchmen of Saul in Gabeah of Benjamin. By the way, again, I remind you, that was where the other rock faced. There was a multitude, they saw a multitude melting away, and they went here and there. So all of a sudden, there's this tumult. Now, Saul, I remind you, he's freaked out. He's got his guys. And all of a sudden, he hears this crazy noise. Now, if, if I were Saul, I would start to think they're coming at us. They're starting to come and charge us. So all of a sudden, the, the, the guys that are like the watchmen who are making sure that if they advance, we're ready to fight or flee, start to look and go, you won't believe this, but they're all like freaking out over there. I mean, they're just getting crazy. What do you do with that? So Saul says, well, wait a minute. Why are they doing? They're, he says they're melting away. In other words, they're screaming like little girls and they're running in every direction. And I guarantee you, nobody expected that. So Saul said to the people who are with him, call a roll and see who's gone from us. Is anyone from our camp making this happen? When they called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahia, and I remind you, he's the high priest, bring the ark of God here, for at that time the ark of God was with the children of Israel. And it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the noise of the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. You know what? It's time to leave. Now, understand what he's seeing is he's seeing these guys fall away and freak out and everything's falling apart in the camp of the Philistines. And Saul finally went, you know what? It's no longer time to kind of sit here. We're going to go and just jump into this thing now. You I mean, it's kind of like the guy that gets knocked down and then a couple other guys kick him once he's down. I mean, then Saul's just kind of jumping into the thing now after it's starting to fray. So we read in verse 20, Saul and all the people who are with him assembled and they went into battle. Now, understand, here are going to be the results of what happens if you're going to be like a Jonathan. And you're going to say, you know what, I'm going to take this thing on the offense, I'm going to go and bring the gospel to people, and I'm going to invite them to say, hey, you want to go and learn a little bit more about this? You want to know how to accept this gift of Jesus. And if they come in, I'm not going to change my mind about this, I'm holding my ground, but if you invite me in, I'd love to tell you about what Jesus has done, how to give your life to him. And the moment that starts to happen, and there's stirring starts to happen, in the eyes and in the ears of people who have never heard the truth about Jesus Christ, the first thing you start to see is that the complacent start to get up and do something about it. Those that are actually you know, not doing anything, including by the way, the king, are like, you know what? I think I really should jump in this. But it starts with, I remind you, one guy in his armor barrier that said, hey, we are going to go and we're going to take this thing to the streets. And all of a sudden, the complacent multitude starts to jump in. But that's only the beginning of the results. And then we read this. It says that and verse 20, Saul and all the people who were with him, they assembled, and they went into battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor. And there was a great confusion. The idea of that was there was a great, they were so confused, they were killing each other. And all of a sudden you realize the enemy's taking himself down here. You're trying to jump into the battle. And all of a sudden what you start to see is you start to see that God's bringing a victory. And you're only there cleaning up the mess. You're grabbing the spoil. Verse 21, we see the next result. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp of the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Okay, this is the next result. We not only see the complacent start to jump into this thing, but now we also see those that have joined the enemy are now actually stepping out of that and going, you know, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? This doesn't make any sense. And they step out of it. And they're like, you know what, I want to join God's people again like I belong. And then it tells us the next result in verse 22. Likewise, the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines had fled, they also followed hard after them in battle. Now hear me in this. What this tells me is that if you, if one person is willing to say, God, I'm not going to just be fat and lethargic like the rest of the world around me that's called Christianity or whatever. I really want to trust that your gospel is the power of salvation. I want to trust that your Holy Spirit still is the one who convicts, and I just want to say yes to you. Well, then this is what you can expect to start happening. First of all, you can start to see that lives are changing because, to be honest, your life is changing. We say that Jesus has transformed us. Well, then people have a right to look and see how. And when you say, I'd love to share with you how. And some of the people will throw whatever they can at you and you hold your ground. Others invite you in and you start sharing and you see other people changing. And as other people start changing, well then all of a sudden the complacent start to step up too. And then those that are in the enemy camp start jumping out of the enemy camp. And then those that were hiding because they were so afraid, now are starting to jump into this thing. That means the complacent and that means the betrayer and that means those that are fearful all are being brought out back into the fray and you know why? Because one person said, I'm going to do this because I believe this is what God wants us to do. One person and his armor bearer. Do you think Jonathan would have gone even if his armor bearer hadn't said yes? I kind of get the idea he would have. It says then, when they heard the Philistines fled, they also followed hard in them. Uh, hard after them in the battle. And our last verse for tonight, it says, is that so the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle shifted to beth Aven. Now, please hear me in this. This hints at what ha- takes place next week because the term Beth-Avon means the house of vanity, the house of nothingness, the house of worthlessness. And what's interesting is, We go from a great victory that the Lord saves Israel in in these first 22 verses to complete worthlessness or goofiness for the rest of the chapter. And we'll see why. But I don't want to go into that tonight, first of all, for the sake of time. But secondly, because, well, in all honesty, I don't want us to lose the whole exhortation God's given us in these verses. Tonight, I would love to pray this as we go to prayer now, that the Lord tonight would put such a spirit upon us. And what if tonight we ask the Lord to do this to us, put us in a place that the people we know, we could say this, I would love for you to know how to receive the gift of Jesus and what he's done in my life. And if they come at you, hold your ground. If they are like, well, you know, I'd love to know more, then say, well, then let's start talking about it. Because then, clearly, God's giving a victory. What if we started with that? And we didn't look around and say, well, whatever's happening with the rest, I'm going to just judge by everyone else, and that's cool enough. But what if we really said, you know what, tonight that's going to change. Tonight I'm going to make myself available, knowing I don't have to be perfect in any of this, because I'm only the tool. My craftsman has to know what he's doing, and he does. And I remind you, this all started by showing that our God so loved us that He sent His only begotten Son, Jesus, to die on the cross so that if we would accept His gift, not just as payment for our sins, but as a resurrection to be our Lord, that He would actually take over our lives and make our lives so meaningful. Not just rescued from the pit, not just not make us a curse, that's the hill behind us. But to take us into exceeding glory as he brings us the victory. Interesting, I remind you, mechmesh means hidden. And I find that interesting because until you're willing to climb that rock, we won't even see what God has for us there. But I guarantee you this, it is exceedingly glorious. And I'm inviting you on that boat with me to the craziest place of goodness. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful text on this beautiful night here in the middle of Covent Garden on our first Tuesday night. And I just pray tonight, God, that you would do something radical in our lives. I pray tonight, Lord, that you would jar us from our complacency and our place, Lord, of just thinking it was an, it's enough to just sort of sit around and wait for somebody else to take us into battle or just to win then I pray tonight you would put such a spirit as it was upon Jonathan who just didn't think that sitting around and doing nothing was enough and that we would have that faith Lord that you don't need a massive army or a huge bankroll or even a tremendously gifted individual to transform lives what you're just looking for is somebody available and willing to let you do the work. So I pray tonight for that for us. That tonight, here in this room, you would put such a spirit upon us. God, that we would go and we'd present ourselves, Lord, to people. And we would say, hey, I love Jesus. And he saved me and he's transformed me and he can transform you too. And I'd love for you to know how. And if they come at us, Lord, let us hold our ground. And if they don't and they invite us in, Lord, that we would know there's a victory to be had there. And we would, be, we would be, we'd man up enough, Lord, to give them the choice to accept the very gift that you've given us the choice to accept that gift where you paid for our sins and our guilt and our filth at the cross and offer us a brand new resurrected life at the resurrection where you are our Lord and Savior and I just pray tonight that you would transform us in that way and that we would say God please today send me to the battlefield but send me Lord bring me an armor bearer bring me one person Lord that would be kindred in this motion that God we would that I would I would want to go out there and this person would go with me and that we would see great victory through this. God, please, tonight, ignite within our hearts the desire to see lives transform and make us such Jonathans. And I'm so thankful, Lord, that even his name means grace. Your grace. And God, I just pray tonight, your gift, that that's what we would go and tout is your gift, God. So tonight, we just give you permission, Lord, to use us, to transform, Form the world. And we just say, here we are, we're yours. In Jesus' name. Jesus. Name.